I love the way Bob opened the worship, and I love the idea of being in tune. I should have brought my snark. Anybody know what a snark is? It's a little digital electronic tuner. <clears throat> and they're only about 10 bucks, and they do a fabulous job. And so when I, when I pull my guitar out, and I want to make sure that, I, that it, it's you know, in tune, that's what I use. We're going to talk this morning about getting in tune, and we're going to talk about playing in tune. Uh, last week, we talked about the essence of worship, about two key ideas that, that, are, that are woven throughout passage after passage after passage that, in which we are called to worship God. And those two ideas are honor and thanksgiving. Worship consists of those two fundamental acts. We honor God for who He is, and we honor Him for what He has done that demonstrates who He is. And we give thanks to God for the marvelous blessings that we receive because of who He is and what He does. Those ideas are at the heart or the essence of worship. Everything that we do is fixed upon God. I love what Bob said this morning. He said, it's hard to think of anything. In fact, there really is nothing in our life experience that should not move us to worship. It's all tied together. This morning, our enviable task is to consider what the Bible says about how. How we are to put that heart, that essence of worship into practice. I want to start by considering first another thing that came up this morning, and I believe it's the most important thing, and that is the critical connection between individual worship and corporate worship. In Psalm 103, on which that great song was based that we just sang, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's calling himself personally to the worship of God. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. There is no more personal way for David to express that idea. My soul, my inward person. Second Chronicles 29. While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang and trumpets sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites, get this, to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph, the seer. So they sang praises with joy and they bowed down and worshiped. They took words that David often prayed from his own heart directly to God and they turned them into the, the content of worship for the whole congregation of Israel. Many of the Psalms of David and Asaph and others are written in the first person. And they express the personal responses of individuals to the character and works of God. And that happens not only in the Psalms, but in many other passages of Scripture. And especially, by the way, in the prophets. We saw this passage from Habakkuk 3 last week as, as Habakkuk was waiting for the invasion of Judah by Babylon that would carry them away into captivity. He said, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, 
Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and He has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk in my high places. That's a personal prayer that Habakkuk proclaimed to God in the first person. And look at the very next statement. (laughs) For the choir director on my stringed instruments. These are earnest, heartfelt words that Habakkuk lifted up to God at a time of great turmoil for his people. And they became part of the liturgy of worship for the congregation of Israel. And guess what? We still have them today. We, the church of Jesus Christ, still find that these words contribute to our heart of worship toward God. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that we would have the timeless treasure of the Psalms if men like David and Asaph had not been true worshipers of God when they were not at the temple? If they never uttered those same kinds of words to God when He was the only one listening? Beloved, the quality of our individual worship between Sundays determines the quality of our corporate worship on Sundays. And there is nothing more important that we can do if we desire vital, vibrant, powerful worship and experience of God when we come together than for us to be characterized by worship moment by moment, day after day. We should be stumbling over each other to get up here on Sunday mornings and proclaim the faithfulness and the goodness of God. I think some of the silence in our worship can be attributed to a worshipful attitude. Sometimes we're men are, are pondering what has been said by the opener or they're looking at something in Scripture and hiding it in their heart and they're praying. Now, I could be wrong, but I think most of our silence has more to do with unprepared hearts. We come on Sundays and we haven't even looked at the theme of worship in the emailed version of the bulletin that goes out on Friday. When the opener calls us to worship, some of us who feel the responsibility to keep the worship time vital and keep it moving along are mentally fumbling around trying to figure out if we can put together the thoughts necessary to have something of value to come up here and say. Others are just hoping that someone else in the congregation can put those kinds of thoughts together and have something valuable to say. Here's an assignment for each of you. And I can say without any possibility of being an error that this assignment comes not at all on my authority but on the authority of God based on His Word. Develop the habit of daily worship of God. Behold God through His revelation of Himself and His Word. And then respond to Him by honoring Him as God and giving thanks. That's worship. Nothing will enhance the quality of our experience of worship when we come together more than that. Nothing will contribute to a fuller experience of God for the person sitting beside you than for you to behold God and worship Him every day. There are certainly other things we can and should consider. 
that might enhance and improve the way we do worship on Sunday mornings, things that might impact how our worship time is structured or how we encourage younger men to participate up front or how we do music or what specific songs we sing. But nothing will make as big a difference in the quality of our worship as becoming habitual worshipers of God in our personal lives and our family lives. Our homes should be pervaded with worship. Now in the passages that the Bible presents as examples of worship, I want to kind of look at the idea of whether petition is actually part of worship. Petition, supplication, making requests of God. I can I looked at 171 instances of the word worship in both Testaments. Those are all I could find. And I looked at the immediate context for each of those. And I have to say, the focus in passages about worship is never on requests that are made of God. That doesn't mean there aren't any requests. It means that's not the focus. The focus is on honoring God for who he is and for what he has done and giving thanks to him for those things, not asking him to do something that he has not yet done. And so my question is, is that the focus of our worship? I think we do pretty well on Sunday mornings. I'm not sure that we do so well between Sundays. In Genesis, let me give you a couple of examples. In Genesis 24, Abraham's trusted servant traveled to Aram north of Canaan to find a wife from among the family of Terah, Abraham's father, for Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham sent him on this task. And the servant went to Aram and he came to a well and he prayed to God and he said, God, grant me success in this mission that my master has given to me. And God immediately answered that prayer with a resounding yes. Because the next person that he encountered was his, was one of Abraham's nieces, <laughs> right? Great niece, I guess, through Laban, who was Abraham's nephew. And uh, I mean, th- through, the f- through his family, his extended family. Now, it says in verse 26, we see Abraham's response to God's answer to his request. And it says, Then the man, the servant, bowed low and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master as for me. The Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Isn't that great? What's he proclaiming there? The name and the works of God. That's worship. His worship was not a request. The request came earlier. (laughs) His worship was his irresistible response to God's amazing answer to that request. Exodus chapter 33 and 34, we looked at this some last time too. Moses, after some amazing events in chapter 32 with the golden calf and that whole thing, Moses went to God and he said, Lord, I pray if I found favor in your sight, let me know your ways. And then he also said, Lord, let me see your glory. That's his request. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and he We already looked at this declaration of God that's the foundation of many, many other 
declarations throughout Scripture that, that come from this passage. And it's an amazing statement. And as soon as Moses then beheld this revelation of God's partial glory and of God's declaration of his own name, what did he do? He made haste to bow low to the earth and worship. His worship wasn't a request. It was his irresistible response to God's incomparable answer to his request. We see the vows of praise in the Old Testament. Someone kind of made a reference to those this morning. How'd that work? Well, if, if I went to God and I prayed, God, grant me fruitful crops in the coming harvest, or grant me a child to be an heir in my family. I would say to the Lord in a vow of praise, I would say, Lord, if you'll do that, I will consider myself obligated to make sure that all of Israel knows about it. It wasn't a manipulation of God. It was a commitment of self to bring the praise of God to the whole congregation because of God's faithful works. The worship that came out of that vow of praise after the, after the fulfillment of the request the worship was not the request. The worship was the irresistible response to God's amazing answer to the request. This, I think, has important ramifications both for corporate and for individual worship. I'm going to say something at this point that, uh, that needs some qualification. I want you to understand this is just Tom talking. This is not coming from the elders. This is not a policy change. This is a suggestion for your consideration. And when you go upstairs this morning to talk about what we can do to improve and enhance our worship, maybe this is one thing that you could consider. I wonder if we should come together at a separate time to bring our requests to God as a body and not try to tackle that very important task at the tail end of our worship meetings every Sunday morning. What if our prayer and sharing time at the end of our worship was a praise and sharing time. What if that concluding portion of our worship consisted of testimonies of God's faithful working in our lives and praise of His character reflected in those acts of faithfulness? What if instead of explaining needs and praying for them, we use that time to celebrate God's faithful answers to needs previously raised? including those that didn't look the way we wanted them to look. David praised and worshipped God when God took the life of his son. Wouldn't that be a marvelous way to finish out our time of worship? As it is right now, we're shifting gears at the end of the worship hour, trying to cram a few critical requests of God into at most eight or nine minutes, and sometimes if we're running late, one or two minutes. I think that short change is important petition that we're making of God. And it puts it in a very high-pressure context because of the time constraint. What if instead of doing it that way, we started providing more opportunities like we did a couple of Sundays ago for the body to come together and to spend a, a good chunk of time lifting up together the needs in this body to God? Now, I'm not saying that that kind of a meaning shouldn't include praise and worship. Praise is the starting point in all things. We're going to see that a little better in a moment. Every request that we make of God is to be accompanied by thanksgiving. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. 
thanksgiving in advance that God will always act according to his character. All right, that's my suggestion. In that vein, I want to backtrack for a moment and take us once again from the corporate to the individual regarding the issue of making requests. And let's talk for a moment about how a heart of worship changes the requests that we make of God. God intends for us to bring every request to Him. And there are hundreds of petitionary prayers in the Bible. Hundreds of them. But there is a vast difference between, on the one hand, desperately pleading with God for deliverance from something that's seriously troubling you in this life, and on the other hand, laying your heartfelt requests at the feet of the one who always acts faithfully. The one who always delivers on his promises. When you pray, are you begging God or are you honoring God? Compare these two prayers. And these are not from my life. I don't have these issues with my wonderful wife, but this was an example of something that I've run across many times from Christians. Here's the first prayer. Lord, I'm dying here. My wife is making my life miserable and it's unbearable for things to continue the way they've been going. No matter how hard I try to do things your way, she doesn't change. You have to change her. I don't have the power to change her, Lord. You have to change her or this marriage is destroyed. If you don't fix this soon, then either you don't really exist or you're not really all-powerful or maybe you're not really all that loving. Which is it, Lord? What are you waiting for, Lord? And most of us are not bold enough to use those words, but that is the spirit of many prayers that ascend to God. Prayers that are anything but a soothing aroma to Him. Here's the second prayer. Lord, I know you see the terrible pain in my marriage, but I know that you are faithful all the time. The fact that you saved me when I deserved only condemnation proves your faithfulness to me, Lord. You have already given me more than I could ever ask. And my relationship with my wife right now doesn't look all that good to me. It certainly doesn't feel good, Lord. But I acknowledge to you that my well-being is not about what I see or what I feel. It's about who you are. I know that no eternal gift that you have given to me is threatened by this or by anything else that you set before me. My only source of blessing is you. And Father, you never change. I pray with all my heart that you'll show me how I'm contributing to my wife's bitterness so I can repent and do the things that honor you and then encourage her walk with the Lord. But her response is your business, not mine. And it does not determine my well-being. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And besides you, I desire nothing that is on the earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion. You are my inheritance forever. As for me, the nearness of my God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all your glorious works. Now the core difference between those two prayers isn't that one is short and one is long. The core difference is worship. 
One is devoid of worship and is an insult to God, and the other is entirely molded by a heart of worship. It honors God and it's delightful to God. Which kind of prayer do you spend the most of your time praying? May our request to God always be molded by worship. Okay, we've talked a little bit about the connection between individual and corporate worship. We've talked about whether uh, petition or supplication is part of worship. And now let's talk a little bit about the uh, role of confession in worship. And this is a pretty important theme in Scripture. First, what is confession and how does God define it? Well, when you confess your sins to God, are you doing the whole act of confession or only half of it? A dear friend of mine when I was in college said when we were looking at this issue of confession in Scripture, especially at 1 John chapter 1, he said, let's see, confession, homo legeo, it means one mind, one word with God. It means you agree with God about your sin. Okay, we all agree that sin is heinous, that it's a violation of God's character, and that I deserve to be condemned because of it. But guys, that's half of confession. The other half is acknowledging what God's done about it. Exodus 34, verse verse 7 says that God will by no means leave sin unpunished. But before that, (laughs) he said, God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, showing loving kindness to thousands. And the most radical proof of those things about him is the cross, because the God who leaves no no sin unpunished took the eternal penalty for my sin, and the sin of everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, and he put that penalty on his own son forever so that we don't bear it. And, of course, because Jesus was the perfect son of God, he paid that penalty in an instant, an eternal penalty in an instant in a day. Being truly of one mind with God about our sin means not only do we confess that it's heinous and worthy of death, but we confess that Jesus paid for it. He paid the eternal penalty for it. He freed us from the power of it. And, beloved, the day is coming when he will free us from the presence of it forever. Why? Because he is a gracious, compassionate, merciful, covenant-keeping God. The connection between confession and worship is that real biblical confession brings us to worship God more fully and more gratefully. The book of Nehemiah provides an amazing example of that connection. On the first day in Nehemiah 8, when Ezra started to read from the book of the law to the people who had been gathered back in Jerusalem, who had rebuilt the walls by God's gracious intervention after 70 years of exile in Babylon, when he started to read from the book of the law, the people bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then according to Nehemiah 8, and verses, especially verses 9 and 10, when the people heard the words of the law read out loud, what did they do? They began weeping and they were very grieved. See, they beheld the character and the works of God and His law, the law that not only told them what the character of God was like, but that recounted for them his dealings with his people throughout their history, that showed that character to them. And they were grieved over their own sinfulness and over the sinfulness of their forefathers. That's godly contrition, and that's a good thing. But timing is important. (laughs) 
And so when Nehemiah and Ezra saw that the people responded to the reading of the law with grief, here's what they said. They said, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then Ezra said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites calmed the people and they said, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Over and over and over they say this. The people's worship of God together was supposed to begin with the spirit of joy and celebration in light of God's demonstration to them of His character and of His works throughout the history of their people. Now this is interesting where this goes. Nehemiah and Ezra were saying to the people, it is not good for you to linger on the matter of your own sin until you have first rejoiced in God's faithfulness. Romans chapter 2 Verse 4 says it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That event in that passage was the first day of the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar. There was a whole lot of celebration and feasting that occurred for the next few weeks, including the observance of the Feast of Booths, one of the prescribed major festivals from the Law of Moses. During that whole month, the law was read to the people every single day. And after the Jews had heard the law of God, read and had joyfully honored God for His name and His works and thanked Him every day for 24 days, then comes confession. Nehemiah chapter 9, On the 24th day of the month, the sons of Israel assembled, how? With fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. That means in mourning and contrition. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day and for another-fourth of the day they confessed and worshipped the Lord. And the rest of chapter 9 is a lengthy liturgy revealing some of what was said during that fourth of each day in which the priests confessed and the people worshipped the Lord their God. The rest of chapters 9 and 10 detail the content of their confession and their worship. And I want to show you a pattern. I don't have time to work through all these these pieces uh, in detail, but I want to show you a pattern. First, when they started their worship and con- their confession and worship, the very first thing they do is exalt once again the name and the character of God. Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou alone art God. And then he talks about the works of God. Thou alone art God who chose Abraham, Abram, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeas and gave him the name Abraham, and then it talks about his covenant with Abraham. Okay, so the, the starting point to this, these days of confession and worship is worship first. Right? Adoration and thanksgiving first. Okay, then confession. They refused to, talking about their forefathers. Our forefathers refused to listen. Even though you were gracious and merciful and covenant keeping, they refused to listen. They did not remember thy wondrous deeds which thou hast performed among them, so they became stubborn and appointed a leader 
to return their slavery to their slavery in Egypt. But thou art a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. I hope those words sound familiar. And thou didst not forsake them. Here's what Israel did, and here's what God did. And that's why we have cause to praise him. See, the confession leads to more adoration and more thanksgiving. That pattern is repeated over and over. The green is the confession, the blue is the praise and adoration. Over and over in those chapters. Now, catch my place here. After recounting over and over God's compassion and forbearance and steadfast covenant faithfulness in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness, the people finally got around to supplication, to making a request. But interestingly, the the request wasn't a laundry list of felt needs. Here it is. It's the yellow. Do not let all the hardship that we're suffering seem insignificant before thee, Lord, which was come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all thy people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you're just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully. The request was not a laundry list of felt needs. It was a request to God to deal with their generation the same way he had always dealt with all of the generations of Israel in keeping with his character that he proclaimed to Moses back in Exodus 34. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. That was their request. By the way, anyone who tells you that God's people receive blessing from Him only when they perform well, (laughs) only when they are faithful toward God and their actions, is skipping a whole lot of Scripture to support that conclusion. The guarantee of God's blessing upon us as God's people is dependent on only one thing, and that is the character of God. Guys, even our repentance is the work of God. The reason we always have cause to be thankful to God is because He always acts in keeping with who He is. The point of confession, (laughs) of us agreeing with God about our sin, is that it turns all of our attention to Him and none of it to us. It brings us to a greater worship of God to honor Him all the more and to be even more thankful to Him. And the same is true of every request that we bring to God. That's why what Bob said about everything pointing to worship, every experience of our life, that's what this is all about, guys. There's an acronym that became popular a long, long time ago to uh, help believers remember the parts of prayer. A-C-T-S, ACTS. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Supplication means request. I'm going to change that up some. I'm going to change it to at cat sat. (laughs) Starts with adoration and thanksgiving. That's what the Judahites did for 24 days. Okay? Adoration and thanksgiving. Then on the 24th day, confession was added to the mix, and the confession led to more adoration and more thanksgiving. And then way at the end of the process came a request. And the request wasn't a laundry list. It was an acknowledgement of God's faithfulness to all previous generations that laid claim to His faithfulness in the present generation. 
And it led to still more adoration and still more thanksgiving. It begins with the adoration of God and with thanks to His holy name. And it ends with the adoration of God and thanks to His holy name. And at every point in between, that's what molds every thought that we have and every word that we utter toward God. His name and His works. That pattern is beautiful. And Nehemiah is just kind of a template. This is all over Scripture. I'm going to run out of time, but I hope, I hope that point is, at least is, is, uh, is made. I think it's powerful. I think it's very consistent in Scripture. I'm going to pose another question. Is teaching part of worship? Uh, again, I looked at all the instances of the word worship in the Bible as it's translated in the NASB, New American Standard, and at the immediate context, I could not find one single occasion on which the words teaching or preaching were ever referred to as worship or even as a component of worship. Praise is a component of worship. Thanksgiving is a component of worship. Humility is a component of worship. You can argue that confession is a component of worship. Teaching is not a component of worship. But here's where the line gets fuzzy. Pointing out from Scripture the character of God and the works of God, which is the content of true worship, could be called teaching, couldn't it? So I don't believe we're supposed to draw a sharp distinction between teaching and worship. It's about focus. It's about whether our worship is focused on honoring who God is and what He has done and giving thanks to Him. That's what... That's what we need to be paying attention to. This is a matter of the heart, not of logistics. If the content you're sharing in the worship draws attention to who God is and what He has done, then it's contributing to worship. If it draws attention to the person and work of Jesus Christ that we remember in the Lord's table, then you're making the right kinds of connections to move us to greater worship. We don't need to be preaching many sermons expositing passages in fine detail and explaining theological nuances during the worship hour. We need to be exalting the name of God and praising Him for His works and His character. That's it. That's what we're doing. So it's about the heart. All right. Last point. Another biggie. Worship consumes the whole self. And this is a beautiful thing to behold in Scripture. Psalm 103 Bless the Lord, O my soul, and how much of me? (laughs) All that is within me, bless His holy name. Psalm 86, verse 12, I will give thanks to Thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart. That's the whole inner man. And I will glorify Thy name forever. And then the outer man gets involved too. 2 Samuel chapter 6, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. With all his might. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. David celebrated with all his might, with no regard, by the way, for his own reputation or for how anybody standing next to him would would interpret the appropriateness of his actions. Is that how we worship God? I don't believe that the response of worship displayed by every faithful Israelite on that day when David was moving the ark was the same. 
I have no doubt that there were some whose response was less emotional and less physical. That's fine. We're not all wired the same way, and that's, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. My brother Taylor Lett was sitting beside me at a seminar a few Saturdays ago, and we were on the subject of how we do worship. And he said something that really impacted me. He said, we should be pleased to have one person standing with his hands raised high and singing at the top of his lungs while the person beside him is sitting with bowed head quietly as long as both are acting from hearts of worship. I couldn't agree more. But if we at CBC suffer from one extreme or the other, (laughs) I don't think it's that we're too consumed with the act of worship. It would be a very good thing for us as a body to acknowledge that God is not ashamed or embarrassed when we are consumed with worship from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. When we're so overwhelmed with who he is and what he has done that we can barely contain ourselves. When that happens, God is delighted. It doesn't matter whether you raise your hands or don't raise your hands. It doesn't matter whether you clap and dance in place when we're singing a rousing song of worship. But if you don't believe you can do those things, the critical question is, why not? If it's just personal preference, that's fine. If it's pride, it's not fine. If it's criticism of another person and how they worship, it's not fine. If you don't believe the guy beside you should be allowed to do those kinds of things, that critical question gets even more critical. Why not? Defend it from this. You ever wonder why so much of what we do at CBC is oriented toward one kind of response, the constrained kind? You ever wondered what it would be like if no matter how any individual chose to express his heart of worship, we were all consumed by the act of worship? Ephesians 5 commands us, not to get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but to be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. What happens when a man gets drunk? He gives himself over to something. What happens when a man is filled with the Holy Spirit? He is given over to the Holy Spirit. He's not thinking about himself anymore. The man who drinks, who gets drunk, gives himself over to something that dissipates. It spreads him thin for no purpose. (laughs) The one who is given over to the Holy Spirit experiences the all-consuming exaltation of God. We have a high roof, but guys, sometimes we can raise it higher when we sing. There's a lot more that could be said on all this, and I, I pray that as we meet upstairs and then as we have action group discussions after that, that we'll kind of lay this all out on the table and say, Lord, what can we do better than we're doing What are we doing just because we're used to doing it? You know, that's a really crummy reason to do anything. Lord, what does it mean to truly worship you? What does it mean to worship you 
in our homes? What does it mean to worship you when we wake up in the morning? I'll, I'll tell you, I, this is a very, this is a, a, a project under construction, big time, and it demands renewal every day, but I've started waking up in the morning and refusing to ask God for anything until I have praised him, until I have acknowledged his faithfulness toward me. You know, my, we're about to hand our son over to the Marine Corps, and I had found myself for some time praying, God, please watch over my son. There's so many influences that could just undo him. There's a lot of good stuff I see there, but there's so much that could undo him. And you know what I've started doing? I've started getting up and and saying to God, God, he belongs to you. You saved him when he was a kid. And you're always faithful. Nothing can change your faithfulness to your child. There is nothing on this earth that can keep you from acting in a faithful and loving and covenant-keeping way toward myself. There's a big difference in those two approaches to prayer. I'm going to close with this. The all-consuming worship of God, kitchen sink included. We read it at the beginning. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Loving Father, teach us to be true worshipers of the Most High God. Father, take the governor off. Help us to see how we are limiting our worship of you. Teach us what it means to worship you without restraint. To truly be filled with the Spirit, to overflowing. It's a a wonderful and marvelous thing, Father, when we get to experience that as individuals, and it is even more wonderful when we get to experience it together. When we get to come together as we will be together in heaven, standing in your presence, worshiping shoulder to shoulder, proclaiming the excellence of your name with hearts filled with gratitude for who you are and what you have done. Lord, we deserve nothing, and you have given us everything. In Jesus Christ, teach us to live in that reality every day. We pray this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen.